You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 20. And let's bow together before we begin. Our Father, we are thankful for your word and for our continual, this opportunity to continue to meditate upon the resurrection of Christ and what it has meant and the implications of it for us, uh, the truthfulness of it. And so we pray that today as we are in your word that you would give us uh, hearts to see your word and hearts to obey your word and a mind that is able to understand all of the truth that is here. Incline our hearts to you, we pray, toward love and obedience and belief through the power of your word in your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, John chapter 20. Last time we were together, we were looking at the first resurrection appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. It was to Mary Magdalene. It was to Mary Magdalene on resurrection morning. And uh, I forgot to mention something that I had intended to bring out during that message. But this is the benefit of preaching on the very next passage in a book. And just going through a book is that when I forget to bring out something that's really interesting or important, I can just use it to introduce the next message the following week. And that's what I'm doing this morning. What I forgot to mention last week is that some people claim that the appearance that we know to be to Mary Magdalene in John 20, 11 through 17 through 11 through 18. Some people claim that that was actually an appearance to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, if you are belong to a group of people that loves to make very much out of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to worship her and to praise her and to sing homages and to her, and you view her as a co-mediatrix and a co-redemptrix and somebody who has who has suffered and done just as much to earn our salvation as Jesus ever did. If, if that's your idea of who Mary is, then you've got to somehow fit um, you've got to somehow fit Mary into the resurrection appearances because it's very difficult, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, to think that you could make that much out of Mary. And, and then observe that nowhere in the New Testament is there ever a, an appearance recorded of Jesus to his own mother after the resurrection. And so some people say that verse 11, when it says in verse 11, John 20, verse 11, that Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, that that Mary is not Mary Magdalene, that that Mary is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there are a few problems with viewing it that way. First, it is difficult to imagine that, that John is here speaking of Jesus' mother, Mary, since we haven't seen her since the middle of chapter 19, and we don't see her again through the rest of this book. She's not mentioned after her appearance at the cross of Jesus. Um, it is difficult to imagine that John would be introducing Mary into the narrative here without distinguishing her from Mary Magdalene. If this was Mary, the mother of Jesus, you would expect John to say, now Mary, the mother of Jesus and not Mary Magdalene, or the other Mary, the other Mary, or the other Mary, she was at the tomb on Easter morning, or Resurrection Sunday morning. You would expect that John, since he has spoken of Mary Magdalene in verses 1 to 10, and she is the central character there, and John is telling the story of the empty tomb through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, you would expect that since she's the central character, verses 1 to 10, and since she is mentioned again, look down in verse 18 of chapter 20, since she's mentioned there, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. That section that is sandwiched between there, though it doesn't specifically say in verse 11 that it was Mary Magdalene, 
it is really quite a stretch, is it not, to sort of put uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, in there when the whole context is really about Mary Magdalene. And then there is the passage in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, where Mark says, and first Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. So there's that. So we have here the appearance of Mary Magdalene, which we already looked at. That was on the morning of the resurrection. And now we get to verse 19. Verse 19 of chapter 20 says, so when it was evening on that day. Now stop there for just a second. It's evening. When did Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene? In the morning, right? It could only have been a few minutes after sunrise, maybe around sunrise, at at most an hour after sunrise on that resurrection morning. And now verse 19, John takes us to the evening. Well, you know what happens between verse 18 and verse 19? Stuff happens between verse 18 and verse 19. And a lot of stuff and a lot of exciting stuff because this is resurrection morning. So this morning, since there are three other appearances between verse 18 and verse 19, this morning I'm going to be preaching on the white spaces between verse 18 and verse 19. You see the little white space between those two verses? That is my text for this morning. I'm going to be preaching on the white spaces. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, Jim, we have seen you preach through a whole chapter of Scripture before. We have seen you preach through a paragraph of Scripture, a verse of Scripture. You have even reduced it down to a phrase, and on occasion you have even preached an entire sermon on a single word of the text. But you have never preached on the white spaces before. And that's true. This is an all-new low. And when I said that to my children this morning on the way to church, I said I'm going to be preaching on the white spaces between verse 18 and 19. My sarcastic child, whom I will not name because it would embarrass her, said, (laughs) she said, of course, as if that was what we should expect. And so since we are taking, um, we're going through John way too quickly, I have now gone to the point of preaching on the white spaces between verses. And that should slow us down because why should any of us really expect to live to see the end of John? And I mean any of us who are sitting here. So verses 18 and 19, between those two verses, there are three resurrection appearances of Jesus that John doesn't record. He records the first one on Sunday morning. He records the last one on that Sunday evening. But there are three in between that John does not record. Those three appearances are as follows. First, to the other women who also came to the tomb that morning. That's recorded in Matthew. And it is only recorded by Matthew and only mentioned by Matthew. The second appearance is to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. That is recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 24, and it is mentioned by Mark in 16, um, verse 10, I think it is. But Mark doesn't give any of the details of that appearance. And the third one is to Peter, and that one is mentioned by Luke in Luke chapter 24 and by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which we uh, Dave read for us this morning. So those are the three appearances that take place between the two that John records. Remember, there are ten appearances. And John, uh, five of them were on that very first day on Resurrection Sunday. John records number one and number five. But there are three that he doesn't record, and those are the three that we're going to cover today. I said to you, as, we, as we're going through these events on Resurrection Sunday morning, we're kind of putting them in chronological order, putting together the pieces, and pulling from all of the Gospels. So that's what we're doing this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. It's not going to be white spaces after all. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to look at the appearance to the women. So we're going to cover all three of these appearances today. And you might have hoped when you first heard that I was preaching on the white spaces that this would be a mercifully short sermon and that you would beat the lunch rush this morning on Mother's Day. But that's not to be the case. Matthew chapter 28. The appearance is recorded in verses 8 through 10. And uh, this is a a short one. And the, the bulk of our time is going to be spent looking in Luke chapter 24 here in a moment. This is the appearance to the women. Now, we have had since we went through John 
21 through 10, we had the opportunity to, to view the events of that morning through the eyes of Mary Magdalene. And here's how it went. Mary showed up at the tomb with the other women. Mary saw that the stone had been rolled away from the sepulcher, and she immediately left to go tell Peter and John. Then she followed Peter and John as they ran to the tomb that morning. Peter and John stepped in. Peter, uh, John believed. Peter left bewildered. And both of them went home, but Mary hung out at the tomb that morning. And she saw the, her, uh, saw the appearance of the angels inside the tomb, and then Jesus appeared to her. And that's what we looked at last week. Now we get to see the exact same events through the eyes of a different group of women. And that's what Matthew gives to us. So these other group of women, they showed up at the tomb that morning with Mary Magdalene. And when all of them saw together that the stone had been rolled away from the sepulcher, Mary Magdalene left to go tell Peter and John, the other women stayed at the tomb. Perhaps to wait for Peter and John and for Mary to return with Peter and John, who were the principal of the apostles, which we would expect that she would run and tell them and they would come to see this scene for themselves. They, while they were standing there, and, and, and when they arrived, by the way, the, the guards had already fled and the angel had sat, sat down on the t- tombstone had disappeared and gone inside of the tomb. So the other women, while they are there waiting for Mary Magdalene to return with Peter and John, they went in and stepped inside the tomb. And Luke says that two angels appeared to them. And one of the angels that Matthew and Mark record spoke to the women. And you see that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 5. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So the angel gave them instructions, these women instructions, that they were to go and tell the disciples about these things, that he was risen. And the women, verse 9, verse 8 says, they immediately left the tomb quickly with great fear or great fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. So now the women have left. Meanwhile, remember, Mary Magdalene and Peter and John were on their way from Jerusalem into out to the tomb. And they arrived after the ladies had left. And then Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene first. So this appearance is sometime immediately after, very quickly after the appearance to Mary Magdalene. And we know that these are two separate appearances because the appearance to these women is somewhere away from the tomb because they left to go tell the disciples. And the appearance to Mary Magdalene was at the tomb. And remember, I've, I've warned you, there is the danger of trying to see those two appearances as being the same event. Because when you do that, you have irreconcilable contradictions and conflicts between the accounts. But they're two separate appearances. First to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, and then immediately, right shortly after that, to these women as they are on their way to tell the disciples. Now, we do not know where this uh, appearance took place. It might have been on the road between the tomb and the city of Jerusalem. It might have been amongst any of the city streets inside of Jerusalem if the ladies went into the city of Jerusalem to tell the disciples. It's also very possible that this appearance was on the road somewhere between the tomb and Bethany. Now, Bethany was a city that was a small town about two miles east of the city of Jerusalem, beyond the Mount of Olives. And most people suspect that when the disciples fled from the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was arrested, that they went out to Bethany where Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived and that they stayed there because that was a place where Jesus lodged often, frequently, with his disciples. So with that crowd of people coming out from the west in the city of Jerusalem toward the Mount of Olives and the disciple for that arrest of Jesus on Thursday evening, those disciples, when they fled, all of them except Peter and John, those disciples fled. The most natural direction for them to flee would be east up and over the Mount of Olives. And they probably continued going off into the town of Bethany. So this appearance might have been if these ladies assumed that Peter and John were coming because Mary Magdalene had gone to fetch them that Peter and John were on their way, these ladies might have left from the tomb and headed immediately out to the village of Bethany to tell all of the other disciples who were living out in, or staying out in Bethany. So this could have been outside the city of Jerusalem on the way to Bethany. And that's 
kind of my suspicion, just trying to put all the pieces together, though I don't know that for certain. So verse 8 begins, takes us to that appearance. They ran to report it to his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So at some point, whether you picture it in the city of Jerusalem or out on the road on this way to Bethany, Jesus walked up and greeted them. Now notice that there is no record here that the women had a hard time recognizing who Jesus was. And we saw that with Mary Magdalene, that Mary Magdalene did not immediately recognize who he was. Uh, the disciples, when Jesus appeared to them by the Sea of Galilee in John 21, they didn't immediately recognize who he was. Uh, later on, we see in Luke that the disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize who he was. And But now there is no record in this appearance. So we, the point of this is that we can't assume that every time Jesus appeared, nobody recognized who he was. There's no record here that these women had any trouble recognizing him. He came up to them while they were traveling and he greeted them and look at their response. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And you'll notice that unlike with Mary Magdalene, this group of women, when they bowed down and grabbed a hold of his feet, Jesus didn't say to them, do not cling to me. He didn't say anything about the the ascension to God and to the Father. This is an entirely different dialogue that he's having with these women. And they bowed down and they grabbed a hold of his feet and they worshipped him. I want you to notice that that is a very appropriate response, is it not? These women were feared, uh, filled with fear, as verse 10 makes evident, when Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. You can imagine why they're afraid, right? I mean, they're seeing somebody that a couple days ago they, they witnessed hanging on a, a Roman cross, and they knew him to be dead. And now they're seeing him alive. That would strike fear into our hearts, especially given the fact that they were not expecting this. They were not anticipating this. It's not what they went out to the tomb that day to see. It was a risen Savior. That's not what they were looking for. So this whole event and the series of events and the appearance of the angels, all of this had to have struck fear into their hearts. And so they are trembling and afraid, but they bowed down and they worshiped Jesus. And I want you to notice that that is quite the most natural and normal and justified response of these women to worship him. How do you respond to somebody who claimed to be God, healed the sick, raised the dead, calmed the sea, created things out of thin air, did miracles to prove that his claims were true, and then died, and now he is standing before you alive, having risen from the dead. What is the appropriate response to that? It is worship. It is to bow down and worship. This is the man who claimed to be God. And we know from Scripture that, Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that he is declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ validates his claims that he was God in human flesh. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that what he said was true, that he is not an ordinary man, he's not just another teacher, he's not just another prophet, he's not a super spiritual guru, he is in fact God in human flesh, who raised himself from the dead by the power of God. And so they bow down and they worship. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't reprove them for that or stop them from doing it. Instead, what does he say? Do not be afraid, go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Jesus doesn't stop them and say, no, no, you don't understand. I'm just an angel. I'm just an important prophet. I'm just a good teacher. I'm just an ordinary man like you. Bowing down and worshiping me is not appropriate. This is an appropriate response to the resurrection. And it would be, if he were not God, it would be blasphemy and idolatry for these women to worship him as such. Did you catch that? If he were not God, this would be an act of blasphemy and idolatry. And furthermore, if Jesus Christ is not God and he does not reprove them for this action, he is complicit in their idolatry and complicit in their blasphemy because he has actually encouraged somebody and not reproved somebody for giving to him worship that belongs to God alone. So here these women worship him, which is the normal, appropriate response, and Jesus didn't reprove them at all. Because he is, he is 
the bodily dwelling place of all that is God. He is God in human flesh, and so it is appropriate for his people to bow down and to worship him. And it seems that these women understood the implications, at least that far, of the resurrection. They were terrified, and they, I don't think they understood all of the implications of it, but like Thomas, who later on that evening would say of Jesus, when, or not that evening, eight days later, would say of Jesus, my Lord and my God, these women understood who it was that they were addressing. Contrast that, their, their worship of him, contrast that with Mary Magdalene's response, which was what? Teacher. Remember we looked at that last week? It's a bit of an understatement, isn't it, to just call him teacher? These women bowed down and they worshipped him. It seems that they understood a little bit more at this point than Mary Magdalene did, at least in terms of the, the, the appropriateness of that type of response. All right, so that is the appearance to the women. Now, look what Jesus says. Do not be afraid. Do not take word. To, go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. This appearance to Galilee, Matthew picks it up in verse 16. After telling the story of the soldiers who went in to, to be bribed and tell about what had happened, they were terrified and they cut a deal with Caiaphas and Annas. That's in verses 11 through 15. Matthew picks up the story in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you notice that the angel, in verse 7, told the women to go, uh, behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And then Jesus says in verse 10, Go, take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and then they will see me. Verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. Now, where was Galilee? It wasn't a little town outside of Jerusalem that was convenient. Galilee was in the region of the north, so they had to go all the way up into the northern regions of the land of Israel. Matthew skips over all of the other appearances that we have been talking about here and gives us only two separate appearances. One to the women outside of Jerusalem while probably they were on their way to Bethany, and the second appearance, which is also, I believe, I can't say this for certain, but this is, my, this is what I believe to be true, and I'm not the only one, okay, so don't stone me as a heretic. That this appearance in, in uh, Matthew 28, verse 16, in Galilee, where Jesus gives this, uh, what we call the Great Commission, that was also the appearance to the 500 brethren. Because the angel said, tell, my, tell them to go to Galilee, there will they see him. But the disciples didn't go immediately to Galilee. They stayed in Jerusalem for that night, and John records the, the appearance of Jesus that evening. They stayed there for eight more days, and, Tom, and Jesus, uh, John records the appearance to uh, the 11 with Thomas present, and then they go up into Galilee, and then there are more appearances up in Galilee. This appearance that the angel mentions, that Jesus mentions, and then that Matthew records, is probably an appearance that was intended to be in front of a large group of people who believed in him. They were to spread the word to all believers. Go to the mountain in Galilee, and you'll notice that verse 16 says, it was a mountain that Jesus had designated. This was a prearranged meeting. People gathered there. All of the disciples gathered there as well, and they worshipped him. Some of them believed. Some of them were not believing uh, in what they were seeing, but that's when Jesus gave the Great Commission. Some people think that the Great Commission was given right before he ascended into heaven. This was his final words, and he, he spoke these, and then he ascended into heaven. But the ascension was from the Mount of Olives, not from in Galilee. The Mount of Olives right next to Jerusalem in the south. That was what the ascension was from. But this is on a mountain in the north in Galilee some weeks later, probably, a couple of weeks later. All right, so that is the appearance to the women. Now, let's look at the second appearance. And this is to the two disciples on the road to the Emmaus. And this is not in Matthew. This is in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Luke tells the story of the resurrection morning. 
in verses 1 through 12, and then the appearance to these disciples on the road to Emmaus starts in verse 13 and takes us to the end of verse 35. So this is a lot of text to fit into the white spaces between verse 18 and 19, isn't it? Verse 13, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus. Now, two of them were going that very day. What's the very day? That Sunday, because verses 1 to 12 is all about the events of resurrection morning. And now Luke skips over the appearance to Mary Magdalene. He skips over the appearance to the women. And now he moves on to the appearance to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. One of these disciples is named Cleopas, and the other remains unnamed through all of Luke 24. Luke and the Holy Spirit did not see fit to record for us who the second disciple was. Some people suggest and speculate that it was one of the 11 disciples, but that can't be because later on, after these men travel back from Emmaus to Jerusalem, that very evening, they went into a meeting and all of the 11 were there. Or the 11, the 11, the group called the 11 were there, Luke says. So it wasn't one of Jesus's close disciples. Some people suggest it was Peter, but it couldn't have been Peter because he was in Jerusalem uh, later on. So this is Cleopas, who we know to be the husband of one of the Marys that was at the cross. That Mary is known as Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Conveniently so. And that Mary and Cleopas were uh, the mother and father of two of the disciples, James the Younger and Joses, are also sometimes called Joseph. And according to church history, not according to scripture, but according to church history, Cleopas was the brother of Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. If that is true, then keep in mind that Cleopas then is the uncle of Jesus and the and his two sons, who were also disciples of Jesus, then obviously were Jesus, two of Jesus' cousins. So that is this Cleopas, and they're on their way to Emmaus, which we do not know where today Emmaus was, but we suggest or suspect, uh, most guesses place it seven miles, obviously it has to be within a seven mile, uh, what do you call it, range, what did I say, radius, that was the word, a seven mile radius of Jerusalem. So it's within seven miles of Jerusalem, most people locate this to the northwest of the city of Jerusalem. So these men are on their way to out to Emmaus. Now why were they traveling out to Emmaus? Matthew Henry suggests that the reason they were traveling to Emmaus is that having watched their messianic hopes be crushed, that these are two men who have simply left the band of followers of Jesus and they're on their way back to their normal life. They had been in Jerusalem. They had expected the kingdom to arrive. They had sung praises to Jesus as he rode in on the back of a donkey. They were expecting that this was the Messiah, this was the kingdom. And now all of those hopes have been crushed. And so what are they doing? They're going back home. What else do we have to do? And so they're on their way out to Emmaus, verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had taken place. Now, what had taken place? The latest football score, the latest basketball score. What are they talking about? They're talking about all of the events of the last three days. And they had a lot to talk about, right? Now, we're not, we don't, we're not made privy to their conversation, but you can imagine the speculation, the questions that they would be answering. Why is it that this man, whom we followed and loved and adored and worshipped, why is it that this man that we saw exercise power over demons, could not himself exercise power over demonically inspired men like Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas. How is that possible? How is it that this man did so much good for other people, but he could not do good for himself in keeping himself away from their hands? How is it that this man that seemed to be able to know the thoughts and the minds of people and be able to foretell the future could not see his own death coming up upon him? How is it this man with such power and so blessed by God could end up dying on a cross, presumably under the curse of God? How is it that somebody so blessed and so powerful and so magnificent of a person could be rejected by our nation that they would call out for his blood and that he would be crucified? If he was the Messiah, which was his claim, and all of his miracles suggested that that was true, if that is true, then how could he die under the 
curse of God on a cross. This just doesn't make sense. And then there's the events of this morning. What do we do with a missing body? Because we have not only a missing body, but we, we don't even know where he has been taken or who has taken him. And then there are reports of angels who are suggesting that he is alive. And we have the testimony of a few women who say they saw angels. And pff, we don't know what to do with any of that. We all know what the testimony of women is worth. That's what they would have thought. Remember, it's their culture. Don't stone me. That was their culture. They thought the testimony of women was useless. And so they're, they're trying to put all of these pieces together. None of this would make sense to them. They would have a lot to talk about for that seven miles out to Emmaus, right? And as they're talking... Jesus came up and started walking alongside them, in front of them, behind them, whatever it was. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But look at verse 16, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now this is supernatural blinding. These men were not able to recognize with whom they were speaking. And the intention, though not stated, becomes obvious. The intention is that, because the implication is that, had he not blinded them from this, had he not kept them from recognizing who he was, that they would have recognized who he was. That's why he kept them from recognizing who he was. But they, they probably would have figured it out after a bit. And so there is the supernatural blinding for a very brief period of time, just for the journey out there. There's a supernatural blinding there that kept them from recognizing who he was. And the point of it was this. He did not want them to realize who he was while he was explaining to them all of the scriptures on the way out to Emmaus. Because... As long as they didn't understand who he was, they would listen to that, right? But as soon as they recognized who they were speaking with, what do you think they would have done? you think they would have heard anything? No, not at all. They wouldn't have heard another word he said. They would have been in awe of this. Their minds would have been racing. They wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with him at all. Jesus wanted to take them to school. And the worst thing to interrupt a lesson like that would be for them to recognize him. So Jesus kept them from recognizing him. Verse 17, and he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? So he obviously heard, and of course he knew what they were talking about. He asked them this question, like he asked Mary the question uh, back in John 20, not because he was trying to get information from them, but he was trying to get them to examine their hearts. He's engaging them in a conversation. So this is for their sake, not so that he could figure out what's going on. What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. They stopped walking, stood still, and were dejected. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting in Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Let me paraphrase that for you. Have you been living under a rock for the last week? Have you been hiding in a cave? If you've been in Jerusalem, which your journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus with us suggests that you have been in Jerusalem, have you had your fingers in your ears for the last three days? The entire nation has been talking about this event. This was not something done in a corner or under a rock. The city sang his praises seven days ago. As he came into the city of Jerusalem, everybody was talking about it. Pilate heard about it. Caiaphas heard about it. This was the the, the messianic hope was at a, a fever pitch. Everybody was expecting that he was going to establish the kingdom. They were waiting on this. He was conflicting with the Pharisees out publicly in the temple. He cleansed the temple in those last few days there. He was walking about freely in Jerusalem. He was the talk of the town. This was the most exciting Passover ever. And then they hung him on a cross on Friday. The whole town has been talking about this, that Jesus was hung on a cross. And and again, it wasn't done in a corner. It was done right outside the city gate, right outside the main entrance into the city on Passover Friday when the maximum number of people would be coming into Jerusalem. And above his head was clearly written in every language that anybody in that city would have been able to read. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And they crucified him there. How can you not know 
what has been happening in Jerusalem for the last few days. And of course, Jesus knew. <laughs> you think? Look at verse 18. Sorry, verse 19. And he said to them, what things? Now he wants them. And again, he's not asking the question because he needs the information, because he's curious. He knows exactly what they're saying. He's asking the question, why? To get them to recite to him what they thought happened to him and what they knew to be true. And so they do so. In verse 19, and they said to him, these things about Jesus, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed. He was a prophet. That means he spoke the word of God. He spoke on behalf of God. And he was prophet mighty indeed and in word and in the sight of all the people. And he was mighty indeed in that he did miracles to authenticate his claims. He claimed to be a prophet of God, a spokesman for God. He claimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one. He claimed to be the son of David. He had a prophetic role. And he was mighty not just in his teaching and in his word, in his proclamation, but he was mighty indeed. He did miracles to authenticate his claims. And these things again were done publicly before everyone. And how the chief priests and our rulers, verse 20, delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things have happened. In other words, this has all happened recently. And our expectation was that he was going to be the one, the prophet mighty in word and in deed, who would redeem Israel. And by redeem Israel, they meant what every Jew in that culture and context in that day would have meant, which was we were expecting that he would be the one to establish the kingdom. That was their anticipation, their expectation, that he would be the one to lead a rebellion, a revolt against Gentile rule, to, by the power of God, overthrow all the Gentile nations, to set up a kingdom in, in, in Jerusalem, in Israel, which would make Jerusalem and Israel the center of world worship and the center of world government. That was their expectation. Now, remember, that was their expectation because that was what the Old Testament promised would happen. It was what the prophets predicted. So that's what they were expecting to have happen. But now he's been crucified. Our leaders hung him on a cross. That was only three days ago, verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So these men apparently had visited with those women before they had actually seen Jesus. These women coming back and we're trying to put all the pieces together. These women coming back from the tomb had encountered these two men. So those Marys, those Marys probably went back and talked to Cleopas, right? in the city of Jerusalem, and then on the way out to Bethany or wherever to talk to the other disciples before they had seen Jesus. So Cleopas's latest information from his wife was not that she had seen Jesus risen, but Cleopas's latest information from his wife was that they had seen an angel who had said that Jesus was alive. Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Now, notice in verse 23, the word that the, the that Cleopas uses, they, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And the word there is just for the word, the word that means to have life. He was alive, zoe. It's not the word that we would translate risen or resurrected, which would be Anastasia. It's a different type of word, which may indicate what their expectation was. Their understanding was that he was alive. And then some of us who were with us went out to see that. They saw the tomb just as it was. They didn't see any angels. They didn't see this man alive. He couldn't have gotten far on the wounds that he had. And so they searched the area, couldn't find him. In other words, nobody has seen any real evidence of this because all we have is the testimony of a few women who came back with an amazing story. And that's the end of it. So now verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Notice what the reproof is for. O foolish men, 
Slow to believe what? The testimony of women? The testimony of angels? Slow to believe what? What is written in Scripture. That's what the reproof is for. Jesus doesn't reprove them for not believing a vision or a dream or a personal experience or the story of an angel or the story of women or anything else. He reproves them for not believing what the prophets said. They could be excused for not believing the testimony of women because women could be misled. They could be excused for not believing the testimony of angels because angels can mislead. But they cannot be excused for not believing the testimony of Scripture. And that's what the reproof is. And just as on an aside, this is important because we live in a day when in church after church, all across our nation, people are more likely to believe the testimony of visions and experiences and dreams and uh, reported trips to heaven than they are Scripture. And a book by Don Piper, 90 Minutes in Heaven, uh, that is a quarter of his book is spent praising men and women who would not believe Scripture, but when they heard him, they believed and they were encouraged. And according to Don Piper, that was a good thing. That's why God let him see heaven and come back, is so that he could tell us all that it is real. And I would say, oh, you foolish men and women who are slow to believe all that Scripture says, and instead believe the testimony of someone who says they had an experience or a dream or a vision or a revelation or this happened to me or an anecdote or a story. It is the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of Scripture to which we must always turn. And so Jesus reproved them, not for disbelieving the women, that's excusable, not for disbelieving the angels, that's excusable, but when Scripture speaks to something and you do not believe it or you doubt it, listen, that is inexcusable, inexcusable, completely. I don't need the testimony of Don Viper, Piper to tell me, or Colton Burpo, or any of these hackneyed heaven tourists. I don't need their testimony to tell me that Scripture is true. I don't need their testimony to tell me that there's a heaven. You know why? Because Jesus told me there's a heaven. That's sufficient. And if it's not sufficient enough for you, then you're a fool as well. I trust that it is sufficient enough for you. And that that would be enough. That what Scripture says is enough. O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Now, they had believed parts of what the prophets had said, didn't they? They believed the part about a kingdom and redeeming Israel and a prophet mighty indeed and the son of David and all that. They believed that. But what they didn't believe, what they didn't understand was what Scripture said concerning this same individual who would suffer and die and then rise again to pay the price of sin for his people. So verse 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Why is it necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory? Because that's what Scripture said. And Scripture cannot fail. Every word of God must come to pass. Every word of God must happen, exactly as he has said it must happen. And so, for that reason, because Scripture cannot fail, because Scripture cannot falter, because Scripture cannot be an error, they are to be blamed for not believing it. And therefore, this, because Scripture says this, the Christ had to suffer, and he had to rise again, and then enter into his glory. So, verse 27, Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. Now, we are not given, we're not made privy to this conversation as well. But I would give any amount of earthly treasure to have sat in on that overview of the Old Testament on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem out to Emmaus. I would give anything to have sat through that. To hear the author of Scripture expound through all of the Old Testament, everything about himself in that book, to those two men, to hear that. I've sat through Old Testament surveys before, Jesus in the Old Testament and the types and shadows. None of, nothing that I have ever seen or sat through would ever compare with those minutes on the road to Emmaus. To hear that. To hear the one who wrote it, wrote the book about himself, explaining to other people how the book testifies about himself. That would have been simply amazing. 
He had to have started somewhere in Genesis, probably Genesis 3, verse 15, the first, the first promise of a Redeemer, where in the Garden of Eden, God promised that a seed of the woman would come and he would crush the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel, meaning that he would be wounded, but not unto death, not fatally, not totally, but that he would end up crushing the control and the power of that serpent entirely. He could have started right there in Genesis 3.15 and said to them, don't you see how that, how that being bruised in Genesis 3.15 must apply to the Messiah, this one that you're speaking of? And then he could have taken them uh, all, all the way through even to Abraham's sacrifice of his own son on Mount Moriah. There's a shadow there. He would have taken them through the feasts and the festivals of the Old Testament and the Passover. Is he not demonstrated in the Passover? He is the Passover lamb who was crucified for us and sacrificed for us. And he's the sinless one because the Passover meal is to be celebrated without any leaven whatsoever. And then all of the feasts and the festivals and all of the offerings and everything in the Old Testament, the priesthood pointed to him. The tabernacle pointed to him. The furniture points to him. Everything that the Jews celebrated, it all pointed to him. It foreshadowed him. It was necessary. He could have taken him into the Old Testament books to David and to Psalm 89 to speak of the covenant that God made with David and show to them that it is impossible that anybody should be able to sit on the throne and rule forever unless they first die and rise again so that they die no more. In other words, all of the promises to the nation of Israel that was given to David, all of it hinged upon this. That it was not Solomon, it was not Rehoboam, and it was not Josiah, it wasn't anybody who sat on that throne. All of them were included in that promise, but all of them were not the fulfillment of that promise. That promise could only be fulfilled by one who could sit on that throne and reign forever and never die. Who would fulfill that? Well, only Jesus could fulfill that. And then he could have taken them into the Old Testament prophets and said, remember the part about about being betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. Remember that? Remember being born in Bethlehem by a virgin? Remember that part? And do you remember the part about being pierced? Do you remember the part about being crushed? Remember the part in Isaiah 53 where it says that he poured out his life unto death? Do you remember that? Remember Psalm 22? My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth and all my bones are out of joint. And they cast dispersions at me and say that he trusted in God to deliver him. Let God deliver him. He delivered other people. Let God deliver him. Do you remember that, men? And, and men, do you remember the part in Psalm 22 where it says they gambled for his garments? Do you remember that? All the way through the Old Testament. Then he could have taken them to any of the prophets, Isaiah 53, um, which speaks of after that death about this one who was crucified, dividing the booty with the strong and all of that spoil and, and being and, and being delighted in seeing the, 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 the tra- travail of his soul in the people whom God has given to him. That foretold and, and portends the resurrection. And then there's Psalm 22, which also speaks of the resurrection as a shadow. And Psalm 16. Remember Psalm 16? David said, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Just certainly raise him up. What a tour that would have been, huh? And that's just only the... That's just only the easy stuff from the top of my head. And that's nothing. All the way out to Emmaus. They got an Old Testament survey. The author of the book telling them about the book that was about him. Remember in John chapter 5 when Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and they are those which testify of me. And then he said to them, you do not believe in me because you do not believe in Moses, and Moses wrote about me. And now he is here with Cleopas and another And he is explaining to him all those things in the Old Testament that were about him. Verse 28. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. And he would have gone on farther had they not asked him. Verse 29. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Now these men who had traveled with Jesus, no doubt, enjoyed a few meals with him, Cleopas, the father of one of the cousins of Jesus, do you think that he had seen Jesus give thanks and break bread on more than one occasion? Certainly they have. And this is the moment at which 
Jesus chose to let them in on what they had not been privy to up to that point. Verse 30, when he had reclined at the table and done that, verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Now he vanished from their sight, not because his resurrected body was a spirit or a phantasm or an illusion or hallucination or anything like that. There is something, and we're, we're given a glimpse here into the nature of what resurrection bodies are like. A resurrection body appears to have the ability to appear or disappear at will. This is what Jesus did here. He's going to appear next week in John 21 in the midst of the disciples in a locked room. He seems to have the ability, even though it is a physical body, it is the same body he lived in, that he died in. He was raised in that body, but it's in glorified form. And it is a powerful body and a supernatural body. It seems at least to have the ability to appear and disappear, to be visible and invisible at the at will. And, and I don't want to even go beyond that because that's all I can say from the text. I don't, Luke doesn't tell us how that's possible or why it's possible or even how he did it. But he did. He disappeared from their sight. Verse 32, and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scripture to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. And I imagine that they were running pretty quickly, hastening. And they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. Now they found gathered together the eleven. That is the appearance. That is the gathering that John speaks of in chapter 20, verse 19. So now we've come after all of that to the end of that white space between verse 18 and verse 19. This is the gathering that John is speaking of. So the disciples were gathered together. Luke says it was with the eleven, which seems to be sort of a designation for the group of disciples. Even though John tells us that Thomas was not there for that particular one, the eleven is just the group of the synonymous with the disciples. The disciples were gathered together in in, uh, John chapter 21. That's that meeting. So when Cleopas and the disciple arrive there, they find that the disciples have gathered together, though Thomas is absent. The disciples have gathered together, and there are others who are there with them. And Cleopas and his traveling companion arrive, and they find that these 11 these disciples and those who are gathered together, they were saying, verse 34, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they, that is Cleopas and the other disciple, they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of bread. So that's the account of the two men on the road to Emmaus. But there's another appearance, a third one that day, that is mentioned here in verse 35. Or verse 34, they were saying, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. That's the third appearance, the appearance to Simon Peter. Now, nobody records the details of that appearance. Luke mentions it here. Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 15, but there are no details recorded. Why do you think that there are no details recorded? I can only speculate. Peter was, I think, probably still destroyed over his failure on that Thursday evening when he fled and when he denied the Lord. I think Peter was still wrecked up over that. And I think it is probably out of deference to Peter that none of the gospel writers record the details of that. What was said? How did the Lord handle him? What was Peter's response? How long did they meet? Where did Jesus meet with Peter? We're not given any of those details. Just he appeared to Peter, and that's it. We don't know what else was said. I do know this. I do believe that the Good Shepherd, the risen Lord, is able to handle Peter just as he needs to be handled in order to prepare him for ministry. And I, I, can't, I wouldn't even speculate beyond that other than to say that this is just one of those appearances that is mentioned, but no details are given. And I think that no details are given for Peter's sake. So those are the three appearances that take place between the two that John mentions, the verse 18 and verse 19. So there's the appearance to Mary Magdalene, the appearance to the women, the appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the appearance to Peter. Now, maybe Peter's was before the road to Emmaus or after. We don't know. But the appearance to Peter, 
And then the fifth one is the one in John 21 that we'll look at later on, which is the appearance to the gathered disciples. So, so far we have four appearances to no fewer than eight different people. So the evidence for the resurrection is starting to stack up, isn't it? And there was a fifth one, and it was that Sunday evening, and we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, your word fills in so many details and so many gaps of what we wish we could know and what we need to know in order to trust in Jesus Christ. And you leave, by your grace, so many things left unsaid and unrecorded. And it is by your providence that you have done this. And we are just thankful that we know and have seen what we, have, what we know and have seen in your word. We're grateful for a Savior who has risen from the dead. Again, that is our hope for eternity. That is our hope for eternal life. We know it to be true, and we trust in this Savior. And we pray that you would use your word to sanctify each one of us, to save those who have not yet trusted in Christ, that you would be glorified through many people coming to know you and your people coming to know you in an even deeper and more profound way to the glory of Christ our King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.